Good morning, Lakeview Church. I'm back on the stage preaching. Some of you are like, man, can we go back to the other two we had speaking here recently? Uh, it is so good to be back. Uh, I took the month of July off from preaching. I've been around uh, for most of the month, but uh, it's been a productive month, even though I haven't been up here preaching week to week. During the week to week, during the month of July, while I wasn't preaching, I was devoting my efforts to a couple of other things. I took a couple of weeks as a mini sabbatical. My family was on vacation. I was with them. But I was not vacationing. I was sitting at a table in our little bedroom at the lake home where we were at. Everybody else was playing in the lake. And I was just furiously typing 13,000 words I completed uh, to finish the last two chapters of my dissertation. Can I get an amen? Somebody, please. I have been working very hard on my dissertation, and I'm, I've got a little bit more work to do. Of course, there's editing and all that fun stuff, and this thing they call defense, which will come sometime this fall. But I will finish my last class in three weeks, and I will be done with all of my coursework, and then I'll be moving to defense sometime in October or November. And by December, Lord willing, uh, my mom's dream will come true. We'll be able to put doctor in front of my name. So uh, excited about that and uh, been working on that. Also been working on uh, some of the challenges that we're facing as a church right now. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on this, but we've got some facility challenges. We've got a roof on one of our buildings that needs replaced. We've got some air conditioning units, some heat systems, some things that need fixed, and that costs money. Believe it or not, they don't do that stuff for free. And so we've been working this summer, uh, been working with our trustees, I've been working with our board, I've been working with our staff, and we've been trying to figure out some proposals of ways that we could address these needs, both in the short term and in the longer term. And so next week, we're going to have a local church conference. That's going to happen right after church on August the 8th, and we want to encourage all of our members to stick around for that meeting. We'll finish the service, we'll have a short break, and then members will gather back here in the sanctuary and we'll walk through those proposals and and we're looking for the body here of members to really help us find wisdom to know whether these proposals that have been developed are in fact the way that God wants us to move forward. So we want you to be in prayer about that. We want you to come with uh, your your just uh, spirit in tune with God's spirit to help us find wisdom as a body. And so we would encourage you to be planning for that. And then uh, the other thing that I've been working on this summer is kind of sketching out all of our teaching plan for this next year. And I really have felt the Lord's help in that. I know that several of you have been specifically praying because I've asked you to pray for this. And you've been praying and you've been sending me text messages and encouraging me along the way. But I've just really felt the Lord's help in laying out our teaching plan for this next year. I'm particularly excited about this fall, though next spring's going to be great too. I, I was on a roll. I was planning to just plan through next April because that's the end of our fiscal year, but I was on a roll. So I went ahead and took us into next June. 
and just really have a lot of things that I feel like the Lord wants to say to our church over this next year and just uh, already starting to study and prepare those messages and just excited about that. But excited about this fall. We finish a series today. We've been in this series on the book of Psalms called the Songs of Jesus. Remember, we've been looking at how uh, these Psalms really shaped the worship life of Israel. And because Jesus grew up in Israel as a Jew, these Psalms shaped his worship life as well. And we've been looking at different psalms and we've been asking the question, what do these psalms say to us about how to pray and how to worship and how to live for God? And we're going to finish that series today. Next week, we start a brand new series called The Prayer of Jesus. And we're going to dig into Matthew chapter 6 and we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to be walking through that series along with the River and Brookhaven Wesleyan here in town as we walk through 21 days of prayer together. And we're going to be asking God to use the Lord's Prayer, not just to guide us during 21 days of prayer, but to teach us how to pray. Because that's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to dig into that. And then in September, we're going to look at the pathway that God has laid out in his word to shape and form each of us to look more and more like Jesus Christ, to live our lives in this world in a way that begins to shape and form this world that we live in so that all of us together can make a difference for the name of Christ. And so we'll be doing that in September. And then really excited about a series we're going to do at the end of September and into October. We're going to be working through the early chapters of the book of Romans. And uh, as we work through those chapters, we're going to be talking about God's plan to move us from a place of captivity to a way of life that he did not intend for us to live. And we're going to talk about the road to freedom How do we actually, by God's grace and by God's help and by God's spirit, move from captivity to freedom and and enter into the life that God has for us to live? And so we'll be doing that in September and October. And then in November, we're going to go to chapter 12 and 13 of the book of Romans, and we're going to talk about what it means to live our lives as a living sacrifice so that each and every moment of each and every day, regardless of where we are or what we're doing, we are honoring God with our lives. And then, of course, in December, I thought we might talk about Christmas. I thought that might be a good topic for for December, so we'll be focusing there. So super excited about the teaching uh, and just so honored to serve with Pastor Jared and Pastor Jessica. They are called of God, gifted of God, and used by God to teach his word. And can we just honor them this morning for the work that they've done these last few weeks? Now, I've already mentioned the local church conference. Just want to say that one more time. If you're a member of our church next Sunday, right after service, please stick around. We'll have local church conference. And then uh, next week also, we're starting 21 days of prayer. We'll give you more guidance on that next week, and you'll even hear a little bit more about that. But we've got daily uh, Facebook devotionals that are going to come out, so you can log on to our website or Facebook, watch a devotional. It'll guide you in the prayer theme for that day, and we want to encourage you to set aside time in the day to pray. So if you are a morning person, do that in the morning. If you're a night person, do it at night. And if you're like the rest of us who are just neither night morning people, just find a time. Lunch time, breakfast time, dinner time, uh, any time to pray and seek the Lord. Here's what I know. God does nothing meaningful in this world apart from his people seeking him in prayer. 
There are, there are not enough worship services that we could have to make God do what, what he needs to do in this world if we are not going to be a praying people. I heard one amen. I should have heard a lot more. We must be a praying church, and so we're going to dedicate August to prayer because we want to see God move as we enter into this fall. We want to see him move like never before, not just in our church, but in our community and in our world. And we are at a time where we need God to move. And so we want to dedicate ourselves to this prayer. That will start next Sunday. And again, you'll hear more about that. Now, I did not come to just tell you what I've been doing all summer. I came because I want to talk to you about a passage of scripture in Psalm 133. I shared with our group that met before the service this morning for prayer that this is the fourth message that I've written for today. Don't worry, I'm not gonna cram them all together and keep you here forever. I, I just kept looking at Psalms and I, I, I had a Psalm and a message all written and then Pastor Jessica preached on it last week because I was away on vacation when I wrote it. She had no idea, and I didn't know what she was planning to preach on either, and then I got back, and I realized she already took it. So I scrapped that one, and then I wrote another one on another psalm, and, and, and I, I just didn't, the message I thought was a good one. I just didn't feel like it was the right one. And then I kept coming back to the psalm we're gonna look at today, and I'll be honest with you, I kept thinking, isn't there another one? Because this one is not the easiest one to preach on because it's a harder topic for us to hear about. And in spite of all of my efforts, I couldn't convince God to let me preach on another one. So we're in Psalm 133, and we're going to talk about that. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because, um, I mean, right now, our world does not struggle with division at all. Everybody gets along perfectly. But there might be a day in the sometime near future where we might need to know about unity. And so I thought we would put this message into our lives now so that we're ready if our world or community or even our church should ever not get along with each other. Now, of course, I'm kidding because we live in a divided time. Right? People aren't getting along so well. And so I think it's important for us to just look at the scriptures for a little bit here and ask God to help us understand what does it look like for us to become people who pursue and live in unity together. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to dig into this passage together. So would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for this time that we could be together. We are uh, thankful, God, for the freedom that we have to gather in worship. Lord, we know that there are places in the world, places where your church exists, where today when people gather in worship, they have to do so secretly and privately, and they can't let a lot of people know because if they do, they could, they could face imprisonment or challenge. So we're thankful. We're thankful that we can come together today. Thankful that we can be in the room and, and through technology, even people who are not in the room are joining us right now in worship and we are grateful for that. God, I wanna pray for these next few moments as we open your word together. 
not only would your word be open to us, but I pray that our ears would be open, that we would listen for your voice, and that your word would guide us and direct us to be faithful Christians in this world. So we give these moments to you now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 133, uh, I kind of just felt led to come to this psalm because I feel like as we go into a season of prayer, we need to be unified. Right? Because, because just, just going into prayer, if we are not together as a body of people, then our prayers will be less effective than they could be if we went into 21 days of prayer as a body of people saying, yeah, we're different, we all come from different backgrounds, and we have different preferences and perspectives and opinions on things, but we are one body serving one Lord. We have one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and we are his people, and we're going to seek him together as one body. Because if we do that, I think we are more likely to see our prayers be effective in seeing God's will be done in and through our church. So Psalm 133 is an important psalm for us as we think about that. Psalm 133 is a song of ascent. You might notice that if you look in your Bible, you, you might see in the heading before you get to verse 1, it might say a song of ascent or a song of ascension. And this is a collection of 15 psalms between Psalm 120 and uh, Psalm 134. 15 songs that the people of God would sing as they were streaming from their hometown to Jerusalem. They would go there for festivals or to worship in the temple. And when they would go to Jerusalem to worship, as they were going, these are the songs that they would sing. And these songs were meant to prepare them because they were, they were going to enter into worship once they got there. It, meant, it was meant to bring them together. Right, Because they're all coming from their own individual lives. And then as they would get closer to Jerusalem, these streams of people would begin to merge into one stream of people. And they would gather to worship God. And so that's what these psalms were for. Psalm 133 is the penultimate psalm. It's not the last one. It's the one before the last one. And, and it's fascinating to me that, that the one before the last one, before they're really ready to enter into worship, is the one that they would sing that says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So as we walk through this psalm, the picture I want you to have in mind is all of these individual streams, individual people and families traveling to one place, and they're all different, right? They come from different towns. They come from different backgrounds. They have different perspectives and thoughts and opinions and preferences. But they're all going to one place for one purpose. And the closer they get to each other, they start to sing this song. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's almost as if they are reminding themselves that we are not coming together so we can do something as individuals. We are coming together so that we can worship our God as one body. 
They're being unified. Almost like in the book of Revelation. Every tribe, every nation, every people group gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him forever. So Psalm 133 is a song of ascent. And as we walk through the psalm, I want you to have that image in your mind. Streams coming together to form one body to worship God. The psalm begins in verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So again, think about those streams all coming together into one body of people. And as you think about that, Think about the words that they're singing. It is good and pleasant when God's people live together in unity. In other words, the reason we ought to pursue unity as a body is because it's good. It's enjoyable. It's pleasant. And the converse is also true, that if we are not unified, if we are divided, well, that's not good. And it's unpleasant. This is profound, isn't it? Deep, deep teaching this morning. Well, it may not seem that profound, but it's true. It is better when God's people live together in unity. It is always better. Always better. Than if God's people are divided against each other because a house divided against itself cannot and will not stand but when a group of people stand together in unity in spite of their differences right we're never going to we're never going to eliminate our differences there are going to be some of you who will always dislike Tom Brady it doesn't matter what team he plays for it's okay the lord can help you with that Right? We're always going to be different people. We're always going to have different preferences, different things that we like, different opinions, different ways of looking at things. We're going to think certain things should be done one way and others of us are going to think it should be done another way. We're never going to get past that. The question is, what do we do with that when that happens? Do we hold on to that? Do we let that divide us and pull us apart? Or do we say, you know what? That's a preference, that's a perspective, that's an opinion, that's a way that I might like it to be done. But at the end of the day, we're one body and we've got bigger fish to fry. How good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. And then the question becomes, well, why is unity important? Well, then we go to verses 2 and 3. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down Aaron's beard. It says, if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Now, these images don't mean a whole lot to us because uh, we're removed by space and time from the moment when these words were originally written. But these images, the images of the anointing oil being poured on Aaron on his head and letting it run down his beard, it was a sign of the anointing of God resting on the high priest. 
for the work that God had called him to do. And that picture of dew falling on the mountain, well, it was just a picture of refreshing that occurred, that when you went to bed at night, you woke up in the morning and there's dew that's fallen on the mountain. Where did it come from? We don't know, but it's a blessing. Those are the images that are used by the psalmist here to say, that's what unity is like. It's, it's just like the anointing oil. It's just like the dew on Mount Zion. And those images are images that are used to help us see that the reason unity is good and pleasant is not just because it feels better when we get along. Unity is good and pleasant because there God pours out his blessing. It's there that the anointing and the favor and the blessing of God can rest when a group of people, in spite of all of their differences, come together in one body as a unified group of people and say, you know what? We have, we have a common purpose, a common goal that is above and beyond any of these other things that separate us. God says, now there's a group of people that I can use. And he lets his hand of favor rest on that body of people. That's why it's good and pleasant when we dwell together in unity. Because when we are in that place of unity, it opens the door for God's blessing. And I want to just, just be very open with you as your pastor. I love our church. I love the people in our church. I believe God has a bright future ahead of us. I know that we have a wonderful past and I celebrate that. I honor that. I am thankful for that. But I believe that God has things for us to do that are not just going back to recover the past. I believe God has things for us to do that we have not even dreamed of yet. Things that God wants to accomplish in and through this church that we would have a hard time even conceiving of today because we don't see it as possible. And yet I'm reminded that he is able to do immeasurably more than anything that we could ask or think or imagine. But here's the thing. We, no matter how, how much I love you and how much you love me and how good we are and how many gifts and talents and abilities we have, we cannot do what God wants to do in and through us if we try to do it without his blessing and without his favor. It will not happen. Of that I can assure you. I believe there's a bright future. And in order to get there, we got to have God's blessing. Because if we try to do it in our own strength, it ain't going to work. I promise. I promise. So I'm not asking us to be unified just so we can say, look at how we all get along. I'm asking us to be unified because I want to see everything that God has for us be accomplished in and through our church. Thank you. I'm glad somebody's with me. We got to pursue unity because it unlocks the door for God's blessing. So I want to just spend the next few minutes here just very quickly talking about three unity killers. Things that divide us, things that pull us apart. 
And these are, there are probably more than these three, but these are the three that I have observed the most in the church over 23 years of ministry. Number one, selfishness. Selfishness. When I was a senior in high school, our basketball team traveled to Dayton, Tennessee, and there we played in the National Christian School Basketball Tournament among Christian schools of our size. There were different size categories, but I went to a small Christian school, and we played in that category, and we finished fourth in the nation. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, when you look at me, you think, of course he played basketball. I mean, a person of his stature would have to be a basketball player. I know. I know. It makes perfect sense. I did play basketball, believe it or not. I was a point guard for my basketball team, and, and we were good. We were good. For a small Christian school, we finished our last two seasons. We only lost like six or seven games in two seasons combined. And we finished fourth in the nation. And it was, it was a lot of fun. What ended well did not start well. My freshman and sophomore years, we were horrible. Now, here's the crazy thing. We did not get any new players that entered our starting five in my junior and senior year. The starting five in my freshman year were the starting five that finished fourth in the nation. What made the difference for our team is that when we were freshmen and sophomores, we did not play like a team at all. We went down the court every single trip, and our goal was not to, not to see if we could work the ball around to get the best possible shot. All we cared about was if we could get the ball and keep it and score ourselves for our own stat line. And so that led to a team that literally, instead of helping open up scoring opportunities for other people on our team, we would actually keep the ball when we shouldn't and take poor shots. And as a result, it was easy for teams to beat us. My first two years, we only won six or seven games combined. And I think one of those was against a team that only had four players. After my sophomore year, our coach, Lynn Moore, pulled us into a room and he said, guys, guys, here's the deal. There's a lot of talent on this team. I think we can be good. In fact, our coach said, I think we can be really good. But if you guys are gonna play for your own stat line, we will continue to be as bad as we are right now. But if you guys will decide that winning is more important than padding your own stats, and if you will learn to play like a team, you can actually learn to be good, maybe even really good. And then our coach left the room. These are like the scenes they make movies out of, you know? And we sat in that room, five of us who were entering our junior year, and uh, we were reminded of what one of our coaches earlier in our playing days had said to us, that guys, we're out here to have fun. 
But always, always, always remember, winning is more fun than losing. So we are also out here to win. To all of the younger people in the room who are playing sports, if your coach tells you it doesn't matter if you win or lose, fire that coach and get a new one. Winning matters. Okay? Winning is way more fun than losing. And if you're playing a sport where they tell you we don't keep score around here, leave. Go find another league to play in. Because life is about winning and losing and competing. So figure out how to do that. Don't, don't let any time be wasted in those leagues. Okay? Now, our coach reminded us that we wanted to win because winning is more fun. And we as a team decided we're going to play like a team. And you know what? We started working together as a team. And it really clicked for us in our junior year when we opened the season at an invitational tournament. And we were playing our rivals. And for the last two years, they had destroyed us. It wasn't even close. And we were matched up against them in the championship game of the Invitational Tournament. I actually have a VHS tape of it somewhere, believe it or not. At halftime, we were down by 26 points. And I remember us sitting in the locker room and saying to ourselves, guys, we've been working so hard to be better. And it seems as if in the first half of this game, we were just doing what we did all of the last two years. We've got to play together like a team. And we went out there and we won that game. Not a single person was out there in that second half pad their stat line. They were out there to say, whatever it takes to win this game, that's what we're going to do. And we won that game. And we never looked back. I mean, we just went on a tear for the next two years because we learned that selfishness is never a winning strategy. We all come to church with different perspectives, different opinions, different ways we want to do things. And I get that. I get that. But if we come to church thinking that church has to be the way I want church to be in order for me to feel like church is doing what church is supposed to do, I will guarantee you that will never be a winning strategy for a church. We come to church not, especially if we're Christians. Now, if you're not a person of faith, uh, we want you to come to church for what you can get out of it. Because we think the most important thing that you need to discover is the grace of God. So if you're not a person of faith, you just keep coming until you get what you need to get out of church. But if you're a church person, you actually don't come to church to get something out of it. You come to church to say, how can I belong to a body of people who are on mission with God in the world? That's the whole point, right? Jesus said, come follow me, not so you can feel good. He said, come follow me so that I can send you out to fish for people. It's not really about you. Once you come to faith, it is about the world. And yet so many times we come, we bring our selfish desires and we want the church to mold to us. And when it doesn't, we get bent out of shape and it divides the church. We cannot allow selfishness to pull us apart. 
We must learn to be selfless because Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing and he took on the lowest form of servanthood and he became human and he gave his life for others. And you and I are called to be just like him. Number two, unresolved conflict. This is a big one, right? People in the church, we live together and we, we worship together and we work together and we, we are in the community together. And here's the thing about human beings. You put them in a room together, they have conflict. It just happens. I always laugh when, when married couples say, like, we've never had a fight. And then I think, huh, they're probably lying. Right? Because you just put people in a room together, and at some point, it is gonna, you're going to rub somebody the wrong way. You're going to bump into them. There's going to be friction, and there's going to be this, this pain that's caused, this conflict. Listen, being a Christian does not mean we should never have conflict. We will have conflict. It is just a part of being a human being. But Christians, when conflict occurs, the question is, what is our response in the middle of conflict? Christians are called to resolve conflict in a very specific way. And it comes right out of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus said, if you have a problem with someone, what are you supposed to do? Talk to 10 people in your small group before you talk to the person? No. Jesus said, if you have a problem with someone, you don't talk to anybody about it. Except the person you got a problem with. You can just see if we just practice that one teaching of Jesus alone, 99% of division in the church would go away. Because you know how division in the church starts? When a person has a problem with someone, and instead of doing what Jesus commanded, we go over here and talk to other people about the person we got a problem with. Now we're getting a group of people to be against this person without this person ever being in the conversation. Now, this is not my teaching. This is Jesus' teaching, right? So if we say that we are followers of Jesus, if we say that we believe the Bible, then we must do something with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. Either say we're supposed to live by it or not. Jesus said, go to the person. And if by some chance that doesn't resolve the conflict, then at that point you find one, not ten, one trusted brother or sister that you invite with you into the conversation so that as you're talking with the person you have a conflict with, you've got a set of outside eyes and ears that they might be able to help you resolve the conflict that you were unable to resolve between the two of you. You can see how the circle's still pretty small. And then, if by some chance the conflict is not resolved, then broadcast it on Facebook. No, no. Go to the leadership of the church, those whom God has put in spiritual authority over you and ask them to help you resolve this conflict. 
Now, in all of my years of being in the church, I can tell you that the overwhelming majority of conflicts are resolved in the first conversation. If you have two people who are following Jesus and a conflict is brought up in the right spirit with grace and with truth, 99% of the time the conflict is resolved in that moment. There are rare occasions when those two people can't see it the same way, and that's when it's helpful to bring another person in. But in all of my years, very, very, very few issues ever get brought to the leadership of the church if we follow Jesus' model for conflict resolution. Now, why don't we resolve conflict the way Jesus told us to? Because it's hard. It's hard to be an adult. right? I mean, somebody does something and it offends you and there's conflict and there's tension. And, and instead of going to that person, which is really hard to do, right? I mean, if you enjoy conflict, see Brian Warner. He can get you some medication, <laughs> right? We're not supposed to enjoy conflict. It's not supposed to be fun. Like, oh good, someone offended me. Now we can have a conflict resolution conversation. No one enjoys that stuff. It's hard to be an adult, And yet, as followers of Jesus Christ, that's actually the only option Jesus gives us. It's to go to the person and resolve the conflict. Uh, Just in the last few weeks, I had somebody come to me. And they said, hey, I was at this event. And I saw a person, and they were talking about you, talking about me. And they don't like you. They're mad at you. They're upset with you. And I thought that was interesting because every time I'm with that person, they've never mentioned it one time. It's not right. It's not biblical. It's not what Jesus tells us to do. We gotta learn how to resolve conflict if we want to stay unified. One more thing, unforgiveness. When people wrong us, sometimes the wound is so, so deep and the pain is overwhelming. Some of you are dealing with that right now. You have people in your life and it might be a person that, that harmed you recently and it might be a person that harmed you decades ago. And you're carrying that wound around. And here's the thing, when you, when you have that wound in your life, if you don't deal with it, if you, don't, if you don't lay that before the Lord, if you don't ask for him to help you, then what ends up happening is that unforgiveness, it starts to harden into bitterness. And eventually it becomes cynicism or critical spirit. And over time, you actually become vengeful and even hateful towards the person that wronged you. This is not God's will for us ever. Ever. It doesn't matter how deep the wound and it doesn't matter how overwhelming the pain. We are always called as people who have been forgiven a debt that we could never pay. Read Matthew 18 after the conflict resolution passage. Parable of the unmerciful servant. We've been forgiven a debt we could never pay. And so as people who have received mercy, we must be people who give mercy 
And Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to be studying over the next few weeks, you should have your debts forgiven as you forgive those who have debts to you. And if we cannot learn to forgive, then the scriptures actually teach that we cannot be forgiven. If we are going to be stingy with our mercy, then God will be stingy with his. Because he wants to be a forgiving God, but he wants his people to be a forgiving people. And some of you are carrying wounds and pain and hurts and scars that you need to let go. You need to let go. And, and some of you say, I don't want to let go. That person, yep, I know what they did was wrong. I get it. But right now, that person's past action is holding you captive. You are letting a person hurt you a second time for the rest of your life. And you could just go before God and it'll be hard and it'll be challenging and you'll need his grace. But if you go to him and say, just help me forgive them, not for their benefit, but for mine. God will help you to be forgiving. And you'll know that you have forgiven when you can actually see that person and not think under your breath, I'm going to get them. I can tell you stories from my own life where my spiritual growth was 100% stunted and hindered because I was unwilling to forgive people who had hurt me. It didn't matter how much I read my Bible or how much time I spent in prayer or how passionate I was when I came to the worship service. I stopped growing spiritually in my life because I was unwilling to forgive people who had hurt me. And it wasn't until my counselor looked me in the eye and said, you're not going anywhere in your journey until you go back and forgive those people. And boy, those were some hard conversations. But I had to go back to those people, person by person, and say, you don't even know. You don't even know how you hurt me. But here's how I was hurt by you and God's been dealing with me, and I just want to let you know that I am forgiving you, and I'm asking you to forgive me for holding bitterness against you. I had to ask those people to let me, to, to, to forgive me because I wanted to get them. But that doesn't reflect the character of Christ. These three things will kill our unity. Selfishness, unresolved conflict, unforgiveness. We got to deal with these so that we can live together in unity. And when we do, it will unlock the door of God's blessing. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we read these words about the church. This is the birth of the church. And it says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly the sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven, and it filled the whole place where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire uh, sitting on their heads. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And right after this, 3,000 people came to know the Lord in a single day. The church began to grow. People were added to their number daily. And the church took off in the book of Acts. But it all goes back to that phrase, they were all together in one place. 
My prayer for us as a church is that we as a congregation would be unified. Not that all of our differences would go away, but that in spite of any differences that we might have, we would be one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all so that we as a church can experience his blessing and do everything that he has planned for us to do. So Father, I pray for us as a congregation today that we would in fact move towards greater and greater unity. Lord, you have plans for us. You have a purpose for us. We know we can't accomplish it without your blessing. And we don't want to do anything that would hinder you from letting your hand of favor rest on Lakeview Church. So would you help us to forgive? Help us to resolve our conflicts and help us to become selfless servants. Unify us, Lord. And let your blessing rest on us for your glory and your honor. We pray it in Jesus' name.